welcome to the Jewishes podcast. Today we have an extraordinary episode coming towards you. I launched my podcast last July and I've had some incredible folks reach out about being on the podcast, but things never worked out. Either our schedules didn't align or there wasn't a topic we could agree on or I just wasn't ready to host someone yet. But finally, I received a request from an amazing rabbi who I've spoken about before. So today we're going to have a wonderful guest that I'll introduce later on in the podcast. Before we get started, I know that this podcast is long awaited. I had a long break that was largely unintentional due to some personal issues. And as you know, there was the shop update where the shop inventory nearly tripled in size. That was a huge undertaking. But we don't need to talk about that. We're going to do the usual housekeeping, which is that you can support the podcast and me through my Patreon, which is also the best way you can contact me. So if you have questions, need suggestions, or want to know certain things, the best way you can get in contact with me to ask those questions is through my Patreon inbox. So we're a minute in, and let's just get started on today's very special episode, all about dreams. We've touched on dreams before when we talked about Jewish divination, because dreams are one of the most prominent forms of divination that we see within Judaism as a whole. It is practiced both in our texts and in our homes as a folk practice and as an official one. When discussions of whether or not divination is halakhically acceptable or is an halakhically accepted practice, it is dream divination that people always have the hardest time fighting against if that's the stance they take. As a bit of a pre-warning, this will not mention every single instance of dreaming that's ever mentioned within Judaism. There are many moments in Jewish text and folklore that I will not touch on, and that's why there are so many books dedicated to this topic. If you feel that there's something really important that I've missed out on or didn't spend enough time talking about, let me know. Oneromancy and oneirocriticism, or the official terms for interpreting and reading one's dreams, is not where we will start. Instead, we will start by asking, what is a dream? If you ask most people, the answer is some level of, what I see when I sleep. Some people expand into what your subconscious shows you when you're sleeping. Others say a subconscious exploration of your thoughts, emotions, and feelings. Wikipedia, via Google, defines it as, a dream is a succession of images, ideas, emotions, and sensations that usually occur involuntary in the mind during certain stages of sleep. And there's a lot of research into dreams, but I won't go into the psychology behind said research because I'm frankly not equipped to do so adequately. However, in certain traditional understanding of dreams within Judaism, you will see a reoccurring theme. Dreams are not merely subconscious flickering images, feelings, or fleeting moments that occur within our minds. They are things that happen on another plane. To quote, Dreams are visions of things actually transpiring on an ultra-mundane plane, where persons are not bound to bodies or events, to specific moments and places. This plane is indistinguishable from that of the gods or God, and dreams are therefore considered to be divine communications. To quote, While the body is asleep, the spirit or soul leaves its corporeal prison and wanders over the face of the earth, reporting back its experiences to the sleepless mind. When one dreams of meeting a friend who is far distant, it is the soul of the two annihilating space which have made contact. Seeing dreams as something that are happening elsewhere in another time or in another place outside of our realm of reality is a frightening, daunting, and incomprehensible thought to some. It is not something that many choose to engage with, and that is completely valid. To see it through this understanding is to open up a possibility that what we see in dreams are real experiences, which can open one up to grave, serious trauma. And we'll touch on this, but let's go back to the Jewish understanding and conception of dreams. 
Some theories and understandings posit a divine origin, but it does not take place on another plane of existence, merely a divinely inspired process of dreams. There are others that are just of human origin. Even the sages of old did not believe that every single dream was divinely given. To quote, Manasseh B. Israel wrote, When one is overheated at night, he may dream that he is warming himself before a fire or enjoying a hot bath. If he is cold, he dreams of ice and sleet and snow. Such dreams are unworthy of attention. They speak folly and are vain and idle conceits. Further, some Jews of old held relatively modern ideas that dreams were the subconscious working through ideas. For example, to quote, Menachem Zayuni described the process thus, The imaginative faculty refashions at night the perceptions which have been oppressed, impressed upon one's fancy during the day. During sleep, when the senses are idle, this faculty overpowers him so that the vision seems as real as though he were withholding it in actuality. Such a dream is reliable in proportion to the vividness of his powers of analogy. It comes to him without him having thought of its subject matter at all, which, in fact, is often quite unconventional. These dreams constitute the miniature prophecy, of which the rabbis said that it is bestowed particularly upon infants because they are not graced with intelligence and their apperceptive powers are undeveloped. Therefore, what the imagination makes of sense perceptions during waking hours is clearly visioned while asleep, for it conceives of things that are true and that come to pass. While the sages seem to agree that not all dreams have significance, it is agreed upon that the dreams of significance are granted by Hashem. To quote, a Talmudic sage quoted Hashem's answer, Although I have hidden my face from Israel, I will communicate with him through dreams. It was also seemingly accepted by medieval Jews, according to uh, Joshua Trachtenberg, there was an angelic intermediary between Hashem and the dreamer. To quote, Sometimes we read of an angel especially appointed over this department, the A-master, or dispenser of dreams. Sometimes it is the Memuneh, man's deputy angel, who molds his sleeping thoughts to apprise him of the will of God. At times, this angel does nothing more than direct the drama of man's waking thoughts on the stage of his dream. And since not all thoughts are true, not all dreams are true. But when the angel introduces his own plotline onto the stage, the vision assuredly has some peculiar and significant meaning. However, there is another interloper into the world of dreams, and those are demons, who are also able to intercede and cause man to dream. However, we will leave demons for now, but don't worry, we will pick them back up later. We're going to move on to some classic Jewish texts and how they are discussed there. When we look into dreams, we first look to Jewish central texts and the dreamers of the Torah. And while we would love to start with the most famous of the dreamers, I'm going to start elsewhere. When I was keyword searching for dreams, I was using Sepharia, the first one that came up was not for a prophet or a Jewish patriarch, but for Abimelech. The story is of how Abraham said that Sarah was his sister, even when she's his wife. And so King Abimelech wants to have Sarah brought to him. But God comes to him in a dream and says, you are going to die if you take her because she is a married woman. And now Abimelech is like, oh God, oh no, literally, oh God. And he says to God, would you punish me because I thought she was his sister, not his wife? And God said to him in the dream, I knew that you had did this with a blameless heart, so I kept you from sinning against me. That is why I had not let you touch her. 
Therefore, restore the man's wife, since he is a prophet. He will intercede for you to save your life. If you fail to restore her, know you shall die, and all that are yours. So here we see that not just Jews and Israelites can receive divine messages through dreams, but the way that we interpret these dreams are shaped by our religious experiences and understandings. Jacob, a patriarch, dreams in Genesis 28, 12 to 15, he had a dream, a stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky and messengers of God were going up and down on it. That's from the Cephalia translation. And there are many deep mystical discussions around the dream of Jacob's ladder, but we'll save that interpretation for a different day because frankly, you can find so much on it. So I want to stick to the more niche things. So the ladder was not the last of its dream, but it wasn't always a given that he would have such prophetic nights. Genesis 32, 14. After he slept there at night, awaiting a divine dream, he took objects of value of presents for his brother Esau. So he slept awaiting a divine dream, not necessarily having had one. He went with a specific intention. Uh, Radak or Rabbi Kimhi leaves a commentary of, he remained standing all night waiting for a response to his prayer. And this shows that he was intentionally seeking to cause a dream of divine purposes. Now, the most famous son of Jacob is that of Joseph or Yosef, and he's one of our biggest dreamers. And that's where we, I remember saying the most dream activity. Now, Joseph's prophetic dreams were not always revered as they are today. And all we have to do is look in the Torah, starting with Genesis uh, 37.5. Once Joseph had a dream, which he told his brothers, and they hated him even more, which admittedly makes a lot more sense when you read the dream, you hear the dream and understand the context of it. And to be fair, he didn't deserve what he got, but it still wasn't great. He said to them, hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field when suddenly my sheaf stood up and remained upright. Then your sheaves gathered around and bowed low to my sheaf. His brothers answered, do you mean to reign over us? Do you mean to rule over us? And they hated him even more for his talk about his dreams. He dreamed another dream and told his brothers, saying, Look, I have had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father and his brothers, his father berated him. What, he said to him, is this dream you have dreamed? Are we to come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow low to you, to the ground? And so his brothers were wrought up at him, and his father kept the matter in mind. So Joseph's dreams are some of the most prominent that we see. And not only does he have these dreams before his brothers sell him, probably because he couldn't keep his dreams to himself, but once he's imprisoned, to quote, Joseph finds his way to freedom through accurate interpretations of the dreams of his fellow prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker. Encountering the men, he notices from their demeanor how sad they are, even before they reveal their troubling dreams that require interpretation. Thus, in this second set of dreams, we see that Joseph is already engaging in dream interpretation that reflects his growing social maturity, which is important because the first round didn't go so well for him. Joseph's dream interpretation is not only accurate and useful, but it literally saves his life. Now, we could focus more on Joseph, but frankly, I don't want to, so we're not going to. It's the easiest topic you can find when you talk about Jewish dream interpretation. There's so much written on it. Um, There are hundreds and hundreds of articles, especially written by larger publications. So I'm going to do one more quote, uh, two more quotes regarding larger central Jewish texts. To quote, the two interpreters of dreams mentioned by name, Joseph and Daniel, expressly refer to the inspiration of God in their interpretations. Daniel even has dreams and interpretations of a vision of the night. Dreams were also taken as divine revelations, even if they referred only to the dreamer himself. To quote, 
Job looks upon the disquieting dreams and the dreadful visions of sleep as terrors sent by God. The prophet also receives his prophecies during sleep. In some cases, God spoke with him. In others, God caused him to behold a vision. Only Moses spoke with God face to face, without the intervention of dreams, visions, or riddles. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. There is nothing to indicate how the dreams of true prophets were distinguished from those of false ones. The higher kind of prophet, however, beheld the vision while awake, either by day or by night. There is a distinction between good and bad dreams within Judaism, and I'm going to start with the good. Well, actually, I'm going to start with the disclaimer that dreams are morally neutral. To quote, Good persons do not have good dreams, nor have bad ones, evil dreams. You are not a better person if you have good dreams, nor are you a worse person if you have nightmares. The idea that you are bad or morally corrupt because of your dreams is something that I've come across quite a bit while researching dream interpretation, though not necessarily simply within Judaism. And I want to make that disclaimer that bad dreams don't happen to bad people and good dreams don't just happen to good people. All people have all kinds of dreams, and Judaism often makes the distinction that it's the interpretation that shapes the dream. Good dreams are obviously good omens. They come in many forms, but most importantly, you, the person having the dream, thinks of it as a good dream. If you thought it were a bad dream, you would very quickly be exiled from the category of a good dream. The reason I'm so vague here is that the quote-unquote rules about dreams in Judaism can explicitly allow for the space of each person's interpretation and understanding of their own dream. To quote, a distinction was made between good and evil dreams. And then, he who goes to bed in a cheerful frame of mind is shown a good dream, which may come to pass within 22 years. Good persons do not have good dreams, nor have bad ones evil dreams. But what of bad dreams? What of nightmares? Let's talk a little bit more about them. Bad dreams are a plague for most people, and over the centuries, Jews have come up with a means of dealing with them. To quote, as evil dreams naturally caused anxiety, people prayed not to be disturbed by them. Now, one of the most common ways to deal with bad dreams was to be a good person in life, to pray, to daven, to give tzedakah, to take care of your family, to be a member of your community, to uh, simply live a good and righteous life that is seen as a good way of being and therefore a good way of protecting yourself. But, to quote, the most common and efficient preventative of evil dreams was fasting and still practiced by many persons. The rabbis allowed such a fast to be undertaken even on the Sabbath in order to release the man from his anxiety, but they required him to take another fast for having fasted on the Sabbath. Fasting is, to quote, as effective against evil dreams as fire against shavings. After the fast, to quote, Based on a Talmudic passage, a special ceremony developed of interpreting a, for good a bad dream. The procedure was for the man who had the dream to say to three other persons, I have had a dream and do not know what to make of it. And they would reply, the dream is a good one and is for your good. This was repeated seven times, though after a 12th century ruling, it was whittled down to only three times. And then the dreamer recited three verses where the words to overturn appeared. And then they would conclude with a verse that ends with, Go thy way, eat thy bread in peace. There is also a very niche practice mentioned of selling one's dreams, which is documented in Sefer Hasidim. Joshua Trachenberg, however, notes that it might include a slight dig at the interpreter of the dream which is being sold. Uh, the interpreter offers to buy the evil dream for the price of a drink, and then the next dead, the next dead, the next day, the interpreter is dead. 
However, Trachtenberg also notes that there is no mention that it could have been the beverage that killed the interpreter. Uh, so there's a little bit of room for interpretation there, which actually does lead us to our next discussion, which is dream interpretation. Because the Talmud famously states, a dream not interpreted is like a letter unread, we have to discuss against halacha around divination. Because for many people, they say, oh, no, no, dreams are not divinations, they're prophecies. But the reality is that these distinctions that we make are relatively modern. Jonathan Stockel, who is a scholar on the topic, mentions how prophecy was seen as a religious phenomenon. However, divination was an umbrella term. To quote, Divination, however, is an umbrella term which I will define as a type of action culturally understood to allow acquisition of knowledge otherwise restricted to the divine realm, whether through technical skill or the divine granting of special direct communication. It is now increasingly recognized that prophecy is simply one type of divination. To quote, the Hebrew Bible distinguishes sharply between what it regards as permissible forms of communicating with the divine and other forms of communication that it regards as impermissible. Traditionally, the distinction has been understood to lie between permissible prophecy and dreaming and impermissible divination, which is portrayed as the consequence of partaking in, quote, foreign practices. This distinction is partly the consequence of translations of Hebrew terms as divination. These scholars have argued that prophecy is a form of divination and that divination should be understood as the system by which humans gain information from the superhuman or divine spheres by a variety of means. So what we see here is that divination can be interpreted as something that is a skilled uh, choice while prophecy is inherent. And if we follow that logic, dream interpretation, as we will continue to discuss it, will almost always fall within the realm of divination, as it's both a skill and an intuitive act. Also, if prophecy is just one method of divination, it already falls within that realm, etc., etc. But let's continue on to how dreams were and are read. Monfred Harris, in their book, Studies in Jewish Dream Interpretation, begins with a fascinating concept that we're not just looking into our dreams as visual stimuli, but rather the visual stimuli we see are as words, and therefore interpretation is a textual analysis. To quote, Moreover, for the sages of the Talmud, the interpretation, and not the dream itself, often seems to be the reality constituting text. To quote, Accordingly, dreams are recorded as presages or omens. They are best understood by visionaries, i.e. by prophets, mantics, and ecstatics, who, in their suprasensory states, are in rapport with the divine dimension. And it is to such persons that God vouchsafes dreams which he wishes to communicate with mankind. In the Bible, dreamer, prophet, and magician are related terms. The final interpretation of dreams rests with God. The interpretation of dreams is found within the Talmud in the response of Solomon bin Adret, as well as other places. To quote, Dreams are usually symbolic, and their interpretation, known as oneromancy, revolves around the unraveling of their images. Dream books, in which such images are codified, feature in Egyptian and Mesopotamian literature. Biblical examples of such symbolic dreams are those of Joseph, and the, of the pharaoh's butler and baker, a pharaoh himself, a man's dream that a cake of barley rolls onto the Midianite camp and bowls is overtaken to port and imminent discomfiture of the people. To quote, that the dreams recorded in the Bible are, almost without exception, intended for the benefit of the race in general and not for that of the single individuals. To continue, the interpretation of dreams in the Bible are not dependent upon astrology nor upon any other occult science, but are simple and ingenious. These dreams are interpreted symbolically. Seven fat kind means seven fat years, etc., the recurrence of the dreams mean that it will surely come to pass within a short time. 
The dreams of Nebuchadnezzar are huger and more fantastic, and their interpretation, especially that of the second one, may be termed allegorical. The Talmud dedicates a huge amount of time to discussing what certain things mean. In their book, Studies in Dream, Jewish Dream Interpretation, Harris dedicates a chapter to Interpretations of Dreams, which is written by a 16th century rabbi. In it, there are 25 pages dedicated to the meaning of dream symbols, which have been categorized as the following. Inanimate things, namely plants, seas, fire, rain, snow, wind, and so forth. Flora, namely trees, plants, boats, because they're made of wood, and the products that come from these things. Fauna, namely cattle, wild fish, wild animals, birds, and their products, such as milk, honey, cheese, cooked foods, and things made from meat. Human beings, namely men, kings, princes, women, lying with women, and the deceased. Heavenly things, namely constellations, thunder, clouds, rain, and so forth, and the divine Torah, which comes from heaven. And the subtle misogyny of the category of human beings being men, kings, princes, and then women being listed as women and lying with women before moving on to the deceased is not lost on me. But I digress. There are so many of these dictionaries of symbols. I'll read now from the Book of Jewish Dream Interpretation so you can get a, a little bit of a sense. I won't read all of it because that would take forever. Just a couple. If an ox kicks you in your dream, a long journey awaits you. If a goose is in your dream, you will become wise. If you see an elephant in your dream, wonders will be performed for you. If you see wheat in your dream, peace will follow you throughout your life. A pomegranate in your dream increases three things, your business, your knowledge, and your good deeds. If you see an olive, you will have a good name. If you see a small boat in your dream, you will gain good reputation. It is a good omen to cut your hair in a dream. If you see the book of Esther, a miracle will be performed for you. If your nose falls off, you will stop feeling so angry. If you see a reed in your dream, you will become wise. If you see an egg and it breaks, your dream will be fulfilled. And along with these books of dream interpretations, there were dream interpreters who served their communities. And one such discussed in Harris's book is Yudaf Taya, an Iraqi Jewish dream interpreter who lived from 1589 to 1942 and served his community in Baghdad. Uh, Judah focused on how a true dream is brought by an angel, and one is that is not is brought by a demon, which means we get to talk a little bit more about the demons and angels. To quote, during the quote true dream, the dreamer's spirit is not troubled during sleep while seeing the dream, but only when he awakens. The rule here is that the dream that comes by means of an angel will be well arranged, not mixed up because of matters unrelated to one another. The dream that is caused by demons, however, frightens the dreamer, makes him anxious, piles up unrelated matters. His heart pounds and he wakes up because of great fears. And Fataya suggests that to deal with this type of dream, one should recite the Shema or say, impure one, impure one, one away, run away from here. They, they whisper in the dreamer's ear. They play around with him in order to make him anxious. They take erotic advantage of the dreamer. Dream, the demons know what excites human beings. However, to quote, these demons were Gentile demons, but there were also Jewish demons. And they have one distinctive characteristic. They make themselves out to be like the early prophets and Tanaim. There are among them who make themselves out to be like the judges and the well-known sages who have passed away. At times they, are, they say that they are Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. 
These these Jewish demons are careful not to make the dreamer anxious, encouraging one to perform pious dreams, studying Zohar in the book of Psalms, and performing midnight vigils. They force upon the person ablutions and ascetic practices to the degree that he is close to becoming sick or mad. And here we see this fascinating, fascinating idea that the Jewish demons cause terror through uh, a performance of religious uh, devotion that can cause illness, while the non-Jewish or Gentile demons cause pain and suffering in a very different manner. However, remember, because so many of these dreams are believed to be brought by intermediaries such as angels, invoking angels was a very popular thing to do. And uh, you could invoke angels through a number of different rituals um, that are outlined in a number of different books. One such book is Jewish Magic and Superstition by A Study in Folk Religion by Joshua Trachtenberg, which has uh, a part of it which is from the Sefer Raziel, which includes quite a number of different things. But angels and demons are not the only thing or spirit or entity that can appear in dreams. If you follow my Instagram, you probably saw a post from a while ago, which goes to something a bit like, so which one of my friends is going to follow the Jewish tradition and make an oath with me that the first one of us who dies has to come to the other in a dream and tell us what happens after we die? This tweet was based on a discussion in Harris's studies in Jewish dream interpretation, but is also reflected lightly in Rabbi Jeffrey Jeffrey W. Dennis's Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism, which discusses how his dream discussions with the dead skirt the prohibition of necromancy within Judaism. Discussing with your dead grandfather his favorite recipe in a dream? Completely fine. Summoning your dead grandfather, particularly in some manner that somehow defiles his corpse or resting place? Deeply frowned upon. There are many stories within Judaism. Uh, here are just a few quoted from Joshua Trachenberg's Jewish Magic and Superstition. The teacher and father-in-law of Eliezer ben Natan, our Eliakim ben Yosef, visited him one night to correct a misconception which had led to an erroneous ritual decision. Rabbi Meir of Rottenberg once helped an earnest student, who had never met him in life, to unravel a badly snarled Talmudic passage. Rashi disclosed to his grandson Samuel the correct pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton. According to popular legend, on the third night after he'd been tortured to death, Rabbi Amnon of Mainz appeared in a dream to his teacher and dictated the solemn Unatana Tokaf hymn, which he had composed while writhing in pain. Other visions from deceased ancestors include showing what happened after death, both in Paradise and in Gehenom, which you can learn more about in our series on death. Uh, they also include descriptions of where to find hidden treasures, how to pay off debt, and more. So these are other relations that you could have in your dreams, talking to your ancestors, seeing deceased figures, etc. And what was the role of dreams in society? Past the age of prophets, we see dreams become a means of personal motivation, but also informing law and code, contrary to what some of your Google searches may tell you. To quote, Rabbi Meir of Rottenberg admitted that a dream had caused him to change his mind in a matter of affecting wages, despite contrary precedents, the rulings of his French colleagues, and his own previous decisions. In fact, there lived in the 13th century a man, Jacob Halevi of Marvège, who gathered in a volume a series of responses which had been handed down to him in dreams, relative to such issues such as shaving the beard and cutting the hair, how and when tefillin should be worn, when certain blessings should be recited, whether milk, foods may be eaten after meat, ritual slaughter, etc. Matters that can seem trivial only to those who are insensitive to the demands which an ardent piety, which an ardent piety makes upon devout people. 
And this was something I found fascinating. To quote, in Havre in 1637, the city court declared a child legitimate when the mother swore that her husband, missing for four years, had embraced her in a dream. Now, this was not Jewish, but I just wanted to mention it because I thought that was fantastic. Uh, yet a vow or decree of excommunication pronounced in a dream was held to be real and binding, even more so than one uttered during waking hours, for the latter could be voided before a court of three men, while the former required a full congregation of ten, the idea being that since the deity had somehow been involved in the dream action, only a minion, over which the Shekhinah presided, had the power to release the dreamer. So we see that despite denouncing it, dreams did play a role within Jewish law and even within secular law because the people who enact and write the law are, in fact, human. And here we can divulge from what we've been doing now to move into the next portion to talk about Under Torah, which is written by my incredible guest, Rabbi Jill Hammer. Unlike a lot of the books and papers that I've cited throughout this discussion, Under Torah is a very different type of dream interpretation book. To give you some insight into the book, it varies from other books I've referenced as it does not just guide interpretation, but an active guide through dream work. It walks you through your dreams in an active form that we understand them taking place in another space, teaching us, bringing us to new levels of understanding and lessons, bringing us closer to divinity and to Hashem. It was a fascinating read and I was blown away by it. I have never experienced a book quite like it. Most of the dreams, uh, books on dreams, are about what to do after the dream is over and you've returned to the conscious world. This book starts when you are still in the dream. I was really lucky to be given a copy of it and to be able to read it and annotate it. And I also had the amazing opportunity to interview Rabbi Jillhammer and ask questions regarding the book, as well as dreams in Judaism in general. So here's that interview. Enjoy. Rabbi Jillhammer, PhD, is the co-founder of the Kohanet Hebrew Priestess Institute and director of spiritual education at the Academy for Jewish Religion. And our two most recent books are Under Torah, an earth-based Kabbalah of dreams, and Return to the Place, the magic, meditation, and mystery of Sefer Yetzirah. You may also be familiar with her book with Taya Shear, The Hebrew Priestess, Ancient and New Visions of Jewish Women's Spiritual Leadership. Uh, we can start with the simple of what drew you to dreams? We all dream, but not everyone really reaches for them. We all experience them, but some people just let them slide by. I know people who I ask them, do you even think about your dreams? And they're like, no, I barely remember them in the morning and I don't want to think about them. What drew you to really grasp onto them and hold onto them and then walk through them? Well, first of all, let me thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Um, I have been drawn to dreams ever since I was a child. Uh, I had very strong imagery in my dreams, sometimes nightmares, sometimes very exciting, you know, fascinating dreams. And they always felt significant to me. You know, they, they are often the world that I discovered in dreams was extraordinary, you know, in, in various ways. And, and as I got older uh, and discovered that that was true for some other people too, you know, it became a, a place where I could meet people, you know, in, in, a, in a rather, uh, you know, mysterious, you know, landscape. Uh, so I, uh, so I, I always enjoyed them and found them meaningful. And 
at a certain point, I, I began to have significant dreams that directed my life in certain ways. Um, probably the, you know, the, the most obvious example uh, is that I was in a doctoral program in social psychology. I wasn't loving it. Uh, you know, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with my life. And I had a dream one night and in the dream, uh, I was at a cocktail party and everyone was mentioning that God had been invited to this cocktail party. And so, you know, we all went to the door to see what God would look like, you know, and when God entered, God was a, an enormous glowing pregnant woman. And when God sat down next to me at the bar, you know, I began chattering about, you know, all kinds of things. And, you know, God thought I was very funny, you know, kind of very cute. Like that's sure kid, you know? <laughs> and at one point God handed me a lantern. And when I woke up, I could not remember what I had been supposed to do with this lantern. And you know, I shook my then husband and was like, I got this gift and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. And he said, boy, are you in trouble? <laughs> and, and it, but it was very clear to me that, that the dream was calling me into something new. And so I called and got an application to rabbinical school. And that was, you know, I'm, I imagine I would have been drawn there eventually anyway, but, you know, but that dream was the thing that made it clear to me. And so when I realized that sometimes dreams have this quality of truth that is articulated far beyond what our waking selves can articulate, uh, it, it just became a, you know, a very exciting, magical you know, landscape to, uh, to play in. Uh, and eventually, uh, I decided that I would like to you know, to work in it in a you know in a more uh, sustained way. And that actually also came about because of a dream, uh, or because of another person's dream. Should, should I? Uh, Go ahead. Absolutely. So the way that I began teaching about dreams uh, was also related uh, to dreaming. Uh, I had a, a very strange week. Uh, this must be about oh I don't know. 15 years ago now, 10, maybe more like 10, 10, 15, 10 12 years ago, uh, where I was, um, I was listening to somebody else tell me their dream, and it was a dream about me. And then somebody else wrote and said, I had a dream about you. And then somebody else wrote and said, I had a dream about you. And I posted on Facebook and said, it's so interesting. Three people had a dream about me. And three other people wrote and said, I had a dream about you. Now, this was not my normal experience. I mean, this doesn't happen to me all the time, you know, that, you know, I, and I think it, it ended up being about 10. And I thought, well, this is a very uncanny experience. What's going on? And I asked a couple of my teachers, what do you think this means? And they did not have an interpretation for me. I guess they didn't want to, you know, stoke my ego in any way. So they said, you know, I, I don't know what this means. And I was like, okay, but it must mean something. And so I decided that what I would do with this experience was that I was going to spend time exploring dreams as a spiritual practice and see what happened. And so I offered a, a class for people to come and explore dreams in a Jewish context. And sort of all of, you know, the rest was kind of born out of that. And eventually I decided to write a book. I mean, that's amazing. It's incredible to, I think one of the things that I was, I'll say this, I, I, I received the book. I said, I'll read a chapter before bed. I read the whole book in one sitting. 
And then I said, you know what, I'll read an, I'll, I have to, you know, cause I read the first book and then I have to go back and highlight, right. For the, you have to take notes. I read the whole book again, the second time, the second sitting. And the thing that was so fascinating to me about it was there's many things, obviously, but one of the things that I love was a very, there's a very specific highlighting and focus on dreams as a communal and group understanding, communal aspect, communal understanding, which, and I believe there's a specific quote in the book that talks about how in the West, it's seen as an individual understanding of our personal psyche. And I, I wonder, how do you balance the both? How is it, how do we balance both? Because there's a fascinating chapter on nightmares, which we'll talk about in a bit. We talk about personal understanding, personal experience, personal history, personal revelation, and communal revelation and communal history. How do you find that balance? And how do you see that playing in a larger context of Judaism? Because I think in Judaism, we see so much of personal and communal uh, existing, coexisting, and and wrestling, frankly, which is very Jewish. Yes. I love this question. I think one of the one of the blessings, you know, that dream work has brought into my life is a sense of the of the balance between personal and communal revelation, right? That you know, there's a set of sacred stories, right, that are understood to be communal revelation, right? And yet, you know, that we call right Torah or the Bible, right? But yet, when everybody comes to those stories, they all have a different, you know, sense of what they mean. Right? And so there comes to be this body of interpretation that is communal, right? That is shared by the group, but that is also very related to each, each individual's uh, personal sense, right? Of that text. And I think, you know, to me that's connected to this um, sense of dreams as a, a kind of personal text, right? A kind of personal narrative. Um, so if you can bring, you know, individual reflection to a communal text, right? Maybe you can bring communal reflection to an individual text. And, and one of the, you know, one of the things that I noticed, you know, and read about as I began to explore this was, right, in Genesis, right, most of the revelations are dreams, right? It's not until later that we get the sense of, um, you know, a kind of a revelation that comes through a codified text or story, right? The first revelations are dream revelations. Right, and they're very much about the individual and their journey. And then later on, you know, dreams become a little bit of more of a um, a present but suspect uh, source of revelation because they're personal and because the the communal authority structure is worried about too much personal input right into a collective spiritual practice. But that was how it was originally. Right, was that powerful dreams were brought right uh, as um, you know, as uh, remnants, right, of, a, of an encounter with the sacred. Right? And that's the kind of revelation that I'm most interested in, right, is this, um, this sense of how does the, how does the, the numinous, right, how does the, how does the holy manifest to us as individuals, right? And then what is, what is my, um, what is my personal, right, wonder or revelation have to do with yours? 
And I think that's kind of a leap of faith in the book is right. Often in the West, you know, as you, as you, you know, as you pointed out, it's like, oh, well, your dream is about you, right? And your psychology and my dream is about me, right? And there's no way that they meet, right? I mean, I could, you know, maybe if you're my therapist, I could tell you about it, right? But there's, they, they don't meet in any meaningful way. But if you think of a dream as coming from the sacred, right, then somebody else's dream is just as valuable as yours, right? It has just as much power, right, um, to, uh, um, you know, to offer a window, you know, into the, into the ultimate, right, as, you know, as my dream does. And in fact, that's what I find when I'm, when I'm in dreaming community is that someone can bring a dream that's not mine but I can be completely transformed by, you know, by the experience of hearing that dream and working with it. And so this leads me to a new question, which I didn't even have on my sheet, but it brings me to the question of one of the things that I find very fascinating. So I obviously Judaism is my home. It's who I am. It's where I flourish, but I love comparative theology and I love studying other religious practices and understandings. And one of the things that I found is fascinating is Judaism's modern adherence to public revelation and communal revelation and how personal revelation can hold significance to one, but it doesn't have to hold significance to the public. And where is the, again, I ask balance because I think the balance is one of the core tenets of Judaism with wrestling you, there must be balance. Uh, and I think how, where do we find that balance of there can be something that is personal and communal. It can mean something to me and it can mean something to you and it can mean something to the next person. And, or, and then the next person can say, this just isn't for me. And where do we find that balance? You know, I think as someone who, who, who does feminist theology, right, and who's interested in a kind of a liberation, you know, a liberation um, critique of Judaism at the same time, you know, that I draw, you know, I draw from it so much in my life, right, and, you know, in my work and, in, you know, in, and in my community. There is a way that the dream um, is a boundary crosser, right? The dream doesn't care about rules. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and the dream can put, you know, the dream can put images for multiple religious traditions in your dream, right? And you're like, why am I dreaming about, you know, the goddess or Jesus or, you know, like there's a, right, there's a way that the dream is not interested in what you think is appropriate. Or like my dream of the goddess, a giant pregnant woman, right? Which isn't complete, right? Which is not the normative Jewish image of, of right? Although in the Kabbalah, we find images of goddess pregnant woman. Right, like it's it's certainly not one you know that they start with in Hebrew school, right? It's not the starter image, the starter right. path for God. Right, but my dream went straight to the image that was powerful to me, right? So there's a way that the dream um, elevates, right, the individual need and the individual voice in a way that we actually need as a corrective today, right? We need we need religious traditions that are responsive to individual identities and needs, right? And, and don't say like, well, you can't be that because, you know, we just, you know, we don't do that around here. So you can't be queer or you can't be, you know, you know, a woman who take, who is in a spiritual leadership role or, you know, so in fact, um, there is, you know, there's a documentable history of feminists getting some of their ideas from dreams, right? Because, you know, they, they, precisely because they broke some of these patterns. Um, you know, there's also, a, I, I also, I like, to I like to mention that the periodic table came to a scientist in a dream, right? Mm -hmm. 
So sometimes, you know, the, um, you know, the revelation and the dream, it's true for you, but it might be true for somebody else too. And it's not coercive truth, right? It's not truth like you must believe this or, you know, but it's true, it, it, it's, a, it's a truth that compels by the power of its image, right? The, by the power of the beauty of the image. And that's really how we want to communicate with each other, right? Not coercively, but, you know, this, you know, this is communal revelation, not because I'm compelling you to think that, right? But because, um, of the, uh, you know, of, of the beauty that, that a whole community can find in it. Oh, I love that. I grew up in a very, very spiritual Jewish home. I was raised in this kind of Judaism. And so dreams were always something that were, was always something we unfolded. Um, and so to me, dream interpretation and understanding was always something we did. It was just the thing you did on the drive to school in the morning. Uh, recently we had a, we had a cat. He passed away a couple of years ago. Recently he came to visit me in a dream. And I was, I told my mom and she's like, and how is he? And I was like, oh, he's fine. I know exactly. He's totally good. He's, he's fine. Uh, but I, there's an aspect of intuitive interpretation, intuitive understanding of the communication and the experience of the dream. But when I look towards more traditional Jewish texts and I'm a researcher, I love research. If you look towards say books like these ones here, so we've got Divination, Magic and Healing by Ronald H. Isaacs. We've got Monfred Harris's Studies in Jewish Dream Interpretation, The Jewish Dream Book by Vanessa L. Ochs. And then we've got, of course, the staple uh, Trachtenberg's uh, Jewish Magic and Superstition. A lot of these, you find these very definitive lists of the discussions of what a symbol must mean. What, what, if you see this in a dream, this is what it means. And I think that when pe people begin the journey of dreams, when they start doing that, having a list is very comforting. What is your interpretation of these lists of symbols? And how do you take these lists from, you know, the sages of old, from these blessed sages, these blessed learners, these scholars who've taken their learning and their understanding and their interpretation of the world and put it on these symbols and whether it's nature, uh, animals, sounds, smells, experiences in a dream and prescribed meaning to it, how do you balance that with personal understanding and other people's experiences and your own experiences in your own dreams? I know that was a very long-winded question. I realize I have a tendency to do that. That's great, that's awesome. First of all, I want to really lift up and celebrate the experience you had with, you know, with your mom on, on the drive to school. You know, one thing that has been so inspiring to me is talking to a few indigenous people who were like, this is what we did over the breakfast table. You know, we had a cup of coffee and we talked about our dreams. You know, it, it's, you know, I, I think, you know, many traditional cultures have this practice, you know, of it being a normal part of life, right? I saw my uncle in a dream. Oh, what did he look like, right? Like, what did he say? How was he doing, right? Um, and I do find that kind of dream experience to be different from the notion of dream as symbol, right? That a, a dream comes to communicate something that isn't really about the dreams, you know, immediate uh, apparent, you know, apparent uh, communication, but has some, you know, some uh, other meaning, you know, some symbolic meaning. And, you know, I, I, would, I would agree that dreams do speak in representational language in the sense of, you know, sometimes, like once I had a bacterial infection, I dreamed of these really slimy crocodiles, you know, and, and so, you know, I wasn't dreaming of bacteria, right? But I also wouldn't call those things um, a symbol, 
right? Because it's not like a conscious, I'm gonna substitute one thing for something else. It's more like a, this is how my dream is representing to me an experience that, um, that I can't really represent visually any other way, right? Uh, so I see it less as a language of symbols and more as a language of a kind of connected web work of images, you know, and feelings. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not, I mean, like many dream workers, I'm not a fan of the dream dictionaries of, you know, if you dream of water, you know, this is what it means. Mm -hmm. Because often you're, you're gonna miss all of the dreamers personal associations with that thing, right? And you may also miss the visceral experience of it. You know, like I remember dreaming once of, you know, I was, um, I was kind of being swept down a river and, and I, I um, it was my childhood stream that I lived near and, and I ended up in the Hudson River you know, and then my daughter paddled by in her canoe, you know, and said, you know, that she was, you know, on her way to camp. And, and it was, to me, it was a clearly like a coming of age dream, you know, that she was, you know, she was kind of on her way, you know, in this, you know, in this, um, uh, you know, in this, you know, young adult sort of way. And while you could call that symbolic language, I don't really think about it that way, because it's more like, that's what one is experiencing is the sense of flow, right? And the body knows what that feels like. That feels like water, right? And so the water comes in the dream, you know, to show you the sense of change. So those lists, like they're perfectly um, legit in a Jewish sense and that the Talmud has a list of symbols, right? That says, you know, if you dream of water, it means blessing. And if you dream of a donkey, it means redemption, right? And, you know, like that. Um, and, I guess those are the pieces of the dream tradition that I don't resonate with as much, but sometimes they have a very uncanny way of, of you know, of turning out to be very interesting. Like the idea of the, um, like for example, they say, well, if you dream of an elephant, um, you'll you know you'll experience a miracle. Right? Well, why do they say that? Because the word elephant peel is like the word for miracle, pella. And Freud also thought that puns are important in dreams. Right, that um, you know, um, you you know, you can dream of you know, uh, you know, an object, and it will sound like you know, and then you'll think, oh, huh, well, that that sounds like this other thing I've been thinking about. So you know, so in that sense, I think the list you know can give you ideas that are useful, but I wouldn't you know, I wouldn't hand somebody a like you know a book and say here you know figure out your meaning of your dream this way. I think you have to. I think you have to feel into the, how the dream is organically presenting itself to you as a as a you know as an individual person. I wonder for those who grew who grew up hearing mm -hmm. those things, yeah, up having those not necessarily you know having lists read to them, but who grew up in environments where they were told, mm -hmm. oh, if you hear this, or they heard someone say it at a young age, and it became ingrained in their subconscious. Right. Those that could be very useful for them. But I always wonder because I look at these lists and sometimes it resonates, like you said, and sometimes I'm, I let it fall by the wayside. I take what resonates and leave what doesn't, but I find it very fascinating. And I, I love to look at the lists and see, and there's, there's the quote, my favorite quote is an uninterpreted dream is like an unopened letter, looking at the dreams and letting them. And I think it's such a waste to let them look by for those who don't necessarily hold on to their dreams or actively walk in their dreams, starting the, the journey, what would you recommend other than obviously your book? Well, I would recommend a couple of things. I would recommend that people start just by making a record of the dream, 
because that actually encourages memory. The more we do that, the more we remember. And I find that if I stop recording for even a day or two, that I lose the dreams for, you know, it could be up to a couple of, you know, weeks or months. Like mine, I really have to, you know, maintain a practice of writing it down to, to keep the, you know, the memory strong. Uh, for other people, it's different. You know, we all dream differently. Um, and once you begin to write them down, to actually, you know, go back into the dream narrative, you can read it, but you can also, you know, go back to it in, in, a, in a visualization sort of way, right? To go back to the dream and notice the points that have strong feeling. Um, you know, where the, where the points where you feel great joy or great fear, right? Notice the points I, I often say where you see very great beauty, right? And then begin to think about those. Like what is, you know, what's being communicated here? But the practice that I really mostly recommend is to have someone to tell. Like what I call in the book a dream karuto, which isn't just my phrase, you know, other people have used it as well. Um, you know, to have, you know, it, it, it could be a circle. It doesn't have to be a circle. It can be one person. Uh, because there is something about the dream. Sometimes um, as much as you may think about it, you may not be able to be as, you, another person can come and say, huh, I wonder if it's something like this. And then it all clicks, right? Because there's something about, it's like when you look at your own painting and then someone else comes and is able to see something that you didn't see there, but is there, right? But you didn't consciously notice it. So another person can help you uncover the stuff that may be in a more subconscious level. Um, so that's a thing that I really recommend um, is to just begin and, and, and to pick someone who, um, who really is a friend because the Talmud and the Zohar both say, only tell your dreams to somebody who's your friend, like to someone who really has your best interest at heart uh, because there are many ways to read a dream and dreams can be read you know, in ways that are beneficial for you also in ways that, you know, might not be, might be projection or might not be as beneficial for you. And so it's good to pick somebody who really knows you and cares about you. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I think they're right on that one. Just looking at my notes here, I have a question regarding one of the things that I was fascinated by was one, your immense citations, but the diversity of your citations and the discussions that you pull from Obviously, there was mass indigenous wisdom. Um, I noticed there was Ray Bradbury was cited, um, just a whole host. And one of the things I noticed was a huge, immense uh, scientific wealth of knowledge mm -hmm. and a discussion of balancing science and spirit, science and spirituality, balancing the scientific knowledge we have of dreams mm -hmm. and also the spiritual knowledge. And where do you find that balance? Where do you find homeostasis there? Mm. You know, it's funny. The course that I mentioned that I just finished is, was a course in science and biblical imagery. Um, oh, incredible. And the question that, we, that kept coming up for us during the course of this, uh, of this class was, you know, are these two bodies of knowledge in conflict or are they not? Are they complementary or do they overlap, right? So how do we think about that? And I'm someone who's always very inspired by science. You know, I find learning about how the mycelium allows trees to communicate or, or learning about how, you know, the earth is positioned just so in order to, you know, uh, you know, to make it possible for there to be life here, you know, and if it were a little bit different, you know, if we didn't have a big moon or something, you know, it wouldn't be the same. You know, those things are very inspiring to me. So, you know, I am interested in the science about dreams. 
And recent science about dreams um, is, is much more complex than, you know, oh, well, it's just sort of random firings of the brain that we interpret as stories. No, it's more noticing that dreams allow us to integrate, they allow us to solve problems. Um, they allow us to consolidate our memory, right? They, uh, they, they allow us to, um, you know, to kind of clean the brain in certain ways. Like they, they, dreams seem to have a pretty significant function, you know, for how our, our brains work and our psyches work. And I don't think that that's um, contradictory uh, with the notion that dreams have a spiritual value. Now, you, you know, you don't have to believe both those things, but, you know, my sense is that dreams allow for the subliminal, the subconscious, the, um, you know, the sense of body, the sense of connection to the larger uh, environment that we live in to come to the surface. And to me, because I'm, you know, I'm an, you know, an echo theologian, right? That is also a way of saying that dream, dreams connect us to spirit, right? They connect us to what's larger than us. So I don't see the two as contradictory. Uh, they might, you know, looking at dreams, um, you know, as a scientist, you know, might differ in certain ways from looking at dreams as a spiritual practitioner. But ultimately, I, I don't see them as contradictory. I actually see them as um, as complementary and uh, and even as overlapping. I very much agree. I find that they are uh, they work as a symbiotic pair. Mm. One of the things that I wanted to discuss, because when I discuss dreams, one of the very first things that people ask me about, that people are most fascinated by, is nightmares. Mm -hmm. They ask, what is the value? Why? Why is God doing this to me? Is it God? Is it science? Is it my own fault? How do I stop it? Is there a prayer that can stop it? Am I missing a lesson? What am I doing wrong? And they ask, one, it's, there's a whole host of questions, but a lot of it is how do I stop it, but also why? And there's obviously a fascinating, a great chapter um, that you, in your book, but a condensed discussion here. What is the value of nightmares in your mind, in your understanding and in your work as a dream worker? So the first thing that I want to say is, I mean, nightmares are a really difficult experience and just sort of honoring that, like it's, it can be very frightening. I have, you know, I have them, everybody has them. Um, but when people bring me nightmares, I often say that nightmares are not bad dreams. They may be unpleasant dreams, but they're not bad dreams, right? They're often bringing something to us that is just as important as a dream that we would have that we would enjoy more. And so I try, you know, personally to receive nightmares you know, for the wisdom that they hold, um, you know, while also trying to tend to myself right around the, you know, the scary aspect, you know, cause it can, you know, it can really be quite unsettling. When I talk to people, I interviewed many people for the, you know, for, to, to write the book. You know, I spoke to many people about their dream experiences and, and, you know, I heard amazing miraculous things, you know, when I heard, you know, very difficult things. And, and one of the things that I learned about nightmares is that often, over time they do resolve, like as whatever issue, you know, is coming to the surface and it begins to work itself out. Um, but it doesn't, it's, it's not always immediate. In fact, it can, it can take a long time. You know, one of the examples in the book is of somebody who had zombie nightmares for years, right? Before having this amazing dream where, you know, there was this vampire girl and she began singing to her, you know, and, and you know, created this 
loving connection with this terrifying character. And, you know, eventually the character turned into a real little girl. And, you know, and, and that broke the cycle of dreams, you know, that, that, uh, that uh, the cycle of nightmares, you know, that amazing dream. But that took years of, you know, her own uh, practice of, you know, of um, dances of universal peace and, you know, all the growth that she did as a person. Um, you know, I've had my own series of nightmares. When I was a child, I dreamed of snake. I had scary snake dreams, you know, like people do. Um, and they were very frightening and they went on for a long time. And one night, uh, uh, the angel Gabriel came to me with a sword and said, you're gonna kill the, you're gonna kill the snake. And this giant snake came toward me with the big fangs and I took the sword and I killed the snake. And that was more or less the last snake dream. Uh, and uh, it was a pretty extraordinary experience. Um, so, you know, I say that to say that often these series of nightmares do resolve themselves, you know, as the person sort of works to the surface, whatever it is. But I, what I would say is, it's, it's, not, um, it's not a simply a question of, well, if I work on this issue, the nightmares will go away, right? Or, you know, I haven't worked on this issue enough and that's why my nightmares haven't gone away. I really think it's mysterious. I think that often the nightmare is expressing something that's happening on a very deep level in our psyche that we don't even necessarily have access to and that we can work on it, but it also just requires patience and you know, prayer is good, meditation is good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, doing dream incubation, saying I don't want these dreams can be helpful. Um, but ultimately it's, it's like a body process and it's mysterious. And, you know, we also just have to kind of allow it the same way we would allow, you know, with a, a stomach ache, right. To just sort of, you know, exist and then pass, right. We have to kind of allow them. Uh, but I do find that it is helpful, uh, when people try to, um, sort of raise the nightmare content, you know, and, uh, that over time that, that can be helpful. Um, but they're pretty mysterious. Can I say two more things about it? Absolutely, go for it. So one of them is um, my one of my teachers, Dr. Catherine Schoenberg, who's a inheritor of a really cool Kabbalistic uh, imaging tradition, um, talks about nightmares being kind of urgent signaling, like this is you know this is an urgent matter. That's why it's so scary. And it can be urgent because it's really urgent in our lives. And that can also be urgent because we're feeling urgent, you know, but I think that's, you know, a, a way to understand what the, what's happening is the, the nightmare is trying to get your attention. The other thing I want to say is that sometimes our nightmares aren't ours. One of the chapters in the book, as you know, is about um, dreaming about the earth and in particular dreaming about uh, climate change. Um, and, you know, when I interviewed dreamers, I did discover people having nightmares about climate change, about racism, right, about um, the patriarchy, right, uh, in addition to their own content, right, around, you know, their own psychic issues and family and whatnot, um, that sometimes we're also dreaming, like, COVID dreams, like, it was actually well known that people began to dream very intensely at the beginning of COVID, uh, so sometimes the energy that we're receiving is not only ours, I think that's useful to remember, too. That is very useful to remember. You highlight and bring forth a couple of prayers that I thought were really beautiful. There's one that I specifically love and it's the one in Ladino, but there was a couple, there was one uh, for ancestors and another one. How did you, I believe one of them, let me pull it up real quick. Some of them were from, I believe one of them was from the Talmud, the ancestor one, was that one written by yourself? 
Um, it's based on uh, it's based on a, a candle making prayer, Yiddish women's candle making prayer uh, for the ancestor. Uh, for Nir Nirish Neshamis. Right? Yes, yes. But it was adapted for this purpose. Incredible. What drew you to creating these prayers? Oh. And, and, and collecting them for these purposes and why these ones specifically, because, you know, Judaism has a prayer for, frankly, almost everything. There's, there's almost everything. So choosing such specific moments and experiences to highlight with such specific prayers, there must be significance there where it felt important to mark it. Can you explain a little bit more there? Sure. I particularly picked prayers uh, for moments in the in dreaming that might feel particularly intense, so for nightmares, right? For you know an ancestor, right, a beloved dead person appearing, which can be wonderful and can also be hard, but it's you know definitely intense either way. Um, you know, for um, you know for those kinds of you know intense experiences, you know, felt like this sort of thing where you might wake up and want to you know and want something to do, you know, want to want to say a prayer. Um, there's also prayers for dream incubation, right, for going to sleep. Um, and also, honestly, um, as, a, you know, this book was very intensely edited because it originally had more than twice the number of dreams, you know, and my editors were like, people are not going to be able to handle this level of dreams, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to cut this down. And so as we were going through that very intense process, um, you know, the, the early readers said, said, you know, we want more practices, you know, we want to know more things to do. So some of those prayers came out of those conversations around how can we give dreamers more support, right, for, um, you know, for going to sleep, for waking up, right, for working with their dreams, you know, from a, from a traditional liturgical standpoint. And so that's why a lot of those were pulled to, uh, to make those available to people. I love that. I thought it was so beautiful. I, I'm a big lover of prayer personally, and I have always been a big lover of bedtime prayers. And so I find such, such magic in the moments right before we go to sleep. And there's a discussion, which obviously you talk about here of in Kabbalah, as we sleep, our soul leaves our body. And there's a discussion of, as we sleep, we are almost dead. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the percentage because I'm horrific with math, but there's a percentage that they specifically name for whatever percentage almost dead. And, you know, when we come back to our body, we say the modani or the modani, uh, where we say, you know, thank you for returning ourselves to our body because in the night we were during, you know, our sleep, our souls wandered, our souls left our body. And I, when I open the book, it pretty much falls open to this page here where this is a discussion of Shrina and the presence. And there's a specific discussion here of Shrina as she, he, they, but also of place. Mm -hmm. And this was very moving for me because I, I found that that specific language was so, so connecting and enthralling. I, I, I know it's, it's divinely inspired, but can you talk a little bit more about that, about how you came to that understanding? Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite things about getting to write the book was getting to write about this. Um, you know, I love the notion of divinity that manifests in place, right? I mean, you know, one of the names for God in Jewish tradition is Hamakom, right? The place. And we, we don't talk about that a lot, but it's, you know, it, it's a way that, that, you know, we express the sense of 
divinity is an all-encompassing um, environment, you know, rather than a, a, you know, a person, right? It's, you know, it's a, it, you know, it's much bigger than that. And, you know, in the Kabbalah, you know, as, you know, as you know, you know, many of the, of the, of the words used to talk about the divine presence, right, to talk about Shekhinah are, you know, the moon, the sea, the apple orchard, right, the temple, the garden, right, and lots of those are places, right, and that has something to do with, you know, the way that they construct femininity, you know, and we can have that conversation another time, but, you know, but there is something wonderful about the sense of being able to enter right, the, into the place of, of, of divinity, not just to sort of meet it as a person. And the way that it ended up, up in the book was that I had been working, you know, with a dream worker, you know, who was very interested in the characters in my dream. And often what I was interested in was not always the characters, but the landscape of the dream. And I felt that this was something I wanted to express to people that sometimes the, the landscape of the dream is itself, you know, the message, you know, um, like there's a dream in the book where someone is on a bus and they're, and they're going through this very ugly urban landscape. But then as they keep going, they're in the countryside and there are statues of Artemis and Athena, you know, and they keep going. And, and then the bus goes under a, in a tunnel under the earth. And then everyone on the bus begins singing, you know, and, you know, that landscape of, you know, going from this sort of, you know, unpleasant urban blight, you know, to, to underground, right? And that's when the voices begin to sing, um, is saying something about the place, right? We come to a particular place and we can experience more there right, than we could, you know, in, you know, somewhere else. You know, it's the, the, the place that is not mundane. Right, but rather embodies something wondrous. It's like fairies, you know, it's like encountering a landscape and being like, there's something magical here. So, you know, so that's what I was trying to articulate is the sense of not necessarily, it can be, you know, meeting a character and then meeting the divine through that character, right? But it can, you can also meet the sacred through the, you know, th through the environment of the dream like those houses that have rooms that you didn't know were there, you know, those kinds of landscapes. Looking at place mm. as a form of, um, you mentioned the apple orchard and we talked earlier a little bit about climate change. And one of the things that we see so much uh, in, you know, if we talk about the, what you call it, the dream dictionary in the Talmud, we see a lot of nature-based things, animal-based things. And your book is called Earth-based Kabbalah of dreams. Can you talk just a little bit? We're, we're almost out of time, but um, if, you, if you can, just talk a little bit about the connection between nature and Judaism and dreams, because I think that that's something that not a lot of people know or really appreciate the vastness of and the importance of. Wow. Oh. So... In the Kabbalah, one of the one of the sort of geniuses and one of the primary structures of the Kabbalah is that the divine exists on multiple levels, some of which are extremely uh, transcendent and inaccessible to the physical world, and others of which are embedded deeply in the physical world. Right, and the Shekhinah, the divine presence, is 
that aspect of divinity that is most embedded in the physical world, that is most kind of interpenetrating, right? It could even be said to be the physical world, right? So this is, you know, a kind of wonderful, um, you know, sense that the Kabbalists create, right? That, you know, this is a, you know, a desk, but it's, you know, it's not just a desk, right? It's also the divine presence, just, a, you know, manifesting as a desk, you know, that's, you know, that's a way that, you know, that the Kabbalists think about that. And what's wonderful about that from the, from the point of view of contemporary ecotheology, right, is that the Kabbalah found a way to continue to express, you know, kind of transcendent view of deity, but to also manifest a more pantheistic view of deity, right, in which, you know, what's sacred is the, is the universe, right, then, and, and I'm very interested in that, right, that, 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 is, that is a way of thinking about what, what matters, you know, that's important to me. And precisely because it doesn't assume that you know the natural world is sort of less than you know the superior the the spiritual world or you know is you know less than you know you know the the human being who's in turn less than the angels right but but rather that the physical world you know the diversity of the physical world is a manifestation of the immense creative you know power and diversity of you know of being itself right. And so that's, for me, um, you know, an important, you know, way that I come to dreams is that dreams also are an environment, right? And they too are a manifestation of that, um, you know, of that, uh, you know, that sanctity. And, you know, one of the ways the Kabbalah supports this is by saying, right, that when people dream, right, they go to the divine presence to dream, right? They go to this place, right, that is the, that is the Shekhinah to dream. But the Shekhinah is also the Shabbat and she's also the Torah, right? And she's also the, the sum total of the Jewish people. And she's also the natural world, right? So I feel that the Kabbalists kind of happened on this amazing insight, right? That when we dream, like, what are we doing? We're kind of sinking more deeply, right? Into um, the unconscious awareness, right? Of the, of the wonder and majesty of the world in which we live, right? And, you know, in the same way that when we when we um, are you know kind of in meditation or on spirit journey, right, or or in some other state that is like a trance state, right, we're able to connect more immediately, right, to you know to that larger reality, right. Dreams are similar a similar kind of state, right, where we're not as defended and our egos are not as strongly separate from everything. Right, so that's you know that's that's how I would connect those things. Is that you know for me as an earth-based person, you know who wants to see our species like take the earth more seriously as a as an entity upon which we depend for survival and as a sacred entity. Um, it's important for me to frame dreams not as a flight out of our world, but actually a deepening into our world. I love that. I love the sinking deeper into it. That's a beautiful way to put it. Thank you so much for this interview. It has been absolutely enlightening. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? We're coming up on the hour mark. Mm. I think the last thing I'd like to add has to do with dreams and healing. Go for it. Absolutely. That one of the things that I found as I was talking to people and as I was exploring my own dreams is that dreams can provide people with an extraordinary level of psychological or sometimes even physical healing. 
I talked to dreamers who were fed food in their dream that, that, that cured them of their depression. Uh, one dreamer who had a, a dream experience in the hospital, right, that created, you know, like physical healing for them. Uh, so there is also, in addition to dreams offering its wisdom, you know, there is a way perhaps because of their unique ability to, to untangle some of what has been tangled in our, you know, in our lives that they can really offer healing. Uh, and, you know, that's a, just a thing I want to invite people to consider is that it might be when your dream is, uh, you know, offering you a hot bath or a, an orchid or, you know, a walk with uh, an ancestor, uh, that it might be offering a way to heal. A hot bath is a wonderful invitation to healing. I always encourage a hot bath. I think there's nothing better. In, I'm a Taurus, so I'm always about a hot, nice bath, a gorgeous orchid, and a nice glass of a delicious hot tea. I would like to say a huge thank you to Rabbi Jill Hammer for coming on the podcast. I'd like to say thank you to Rabbi Jill Hammer and Ian Press for sending me a copy of the book. It is such a great addition to any collection when you are looking into and studying Jewish dream work. It offers such a unique perspective and because it's taken me so long between the original interview and reading the book for the first time, I can say that there are so many things that I've implemented into my own practice from this book that I have really found it to be extraordinarily helpful. Um, and I can truly say, not because I was gifted it, but because I genuinely enjoy it and find it to be a valuable addition to my resource library, that it is a book that I really enjoy. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start with our citations, obviously, other than under Torah, Earth-Based Kabbalah of Dreams by Rabbi Jill Hammer. Before that, I want to remind you that you can rate the Jewish's podcast on both Spotify and Apple. Apple podcast reviews are some of the most helpful for boosting the podcast. So if you enjoy it, I would love to know. I promise I read every single one of the reviews. I want to say thank you to Ashley and Elliot for their very, very sweet review that they wrote. Now on to our citations. So we have Studies in Jewish Dream Interpretation by Monfred Harris, the Wikipedia page for dreams, which we used for, I believe, one sentence the jewishvirtuallibrary.org slash dreams, jewishencyclopedia.com, their article on dreams, my Jewish learning, dreams and dream interpretation, Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis's Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism, Esther Hamori's The Prophet and the Necromancer, Women's Divination for Kings, we have Daniel and Prophetization of Dream Divination, we have Sepharium, a couple of different times I cite that uh, for different Torah passages, all of the dreams follow the mouth, dreamers and interpretation interpreters in rabbinic literature by Chaim Weiss, Jewish magic and superstition by Joshua Trachtenberg, and the Jewish dream book, The Key to Opening the Inner Meaning of Your Dreams by Vanessa L. Achs with Elizabeth Achs. Thank you all so much for listening. Hopefully our next episode is just a little bit quicker to come. I'll see you all then. Goodbye.